0: with him no more. They found his words intriguing, but could never call him Lord. Then to the twelve he dared to ask, will you also walk away? So beautiful the answer, those words of Peter's faith. Precious words that Peter her are wrong.
1: Thank you ladies, I
2: appreciate that, beautiful song, sung by a, quite a herd of women, <laughs> sorry, it was just, it's there, if you're visiting with them, their last names are herds, just so, beautiful song. If you have your copies of God's Word, you'll notice that in a cost-saving effort, we are now only using one monitor at a time. Uh, this one decided to go out, but I've got good news for you folks. Uh, next week, um, we, we purchased about four or five months ago new equipment that is being installed this week. So how's that for timing? Thank you, sound team, for that beautiful, beautiful timing. So next week that will be fixed. With that being said, let's pick up in ver- verse 30, 32. This is going to be rough, all right? Hmm. I just want to see if I want to read anything else. Okay, so they leave the Sanhedrin. Don't talk anymore about Jesus. But there's really nothing they can do with Peter, John. And the man with brand new calves leaping like a deer. And they leave and they go back to their assembly and they begin to speak about Christ even more boldly. You'll find that in verse 31, picking up in verse 32. And the congregation of those who were believed, who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, the exact opposite of what the Sanhedrin told them to do, and abundant grace was upon the church. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed as each had need now joseph a levite of Cyprian birth and because there were so many joseph in their midst the apostles gave him kind of a nickname if you will called barnabas all right which translates and means son of encouragement who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. At this time, we will be having an offering and we'll open in a word of prayer. Let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious
1: Heavenly Father, it is your Holy Spirit that we want to hear from, to teach. Open our eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear. That fertile ground of our hearts might be receptive to your word, may it not be rocky, may it not be hard packed, may it not spring up and die quickly, but may the seeds of your word change us, change me. Father, I am a sinful man, you are a holy God, you alone are worthy. Father, I pray that we would leave here not just knowing more about Christ, not just being better apologists of our faith, but people who live it. Bless this church, Lord. Everyone here belongs to You and You alone. And we submit our lives to You And I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious and
2: holy name, and if you're awake this morning, say something Something. nice. (laughs) Visitors are like, and this is our last time here. (laughs) So how, let me get the shadows off my, there we go. So how does a church thrive, especially in a culture that wants it to die? And that rhymed. How does a church thrive in a culture that wants it to die? And that is exactly what is going on here in this text. Peter and John and the newly healed lame man are set free and warned not to speak again in the name of Jesus so that faith in him would not spread amongst the community. Stop proselytizing. Stop evangelizing. It could not be clear. Persecution in animosity towards the church has officially begun in fact we see that clearly in verse 27 of this chapter which which says this for truly in jerusalem where they were gathered together they i'm sorry for truly in the city there was get why can't i read that there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, are all against the servant, Jesus Christ. And this same animosity rages today. Because we serve the same risen Christ today. Sure, in America, it's under a different name. Our culture opposes the church of Jesus Christ, not so much with pitchforks and fires. It is opposed with a different weapon, and some may say a weapon that is mightier than the sword, and that is words. The church is persecuted with having words thrown at it with like pluralism, hate speech, bigotry, ridicule, contextualization, and progressivism. The moment we hold that there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ, who is resurrected from the dead, and that his moral law is absolute, the church of Christ is opposed. Which brings up the question we have started with How does the church thrive in a culture that wants it to die? Of course, there are the four major pillars that we have already studied and committed ourselves to, which is the scriptures, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But it is not enough to know these things. It is not enough to know these things. We must we must ask ourselves, how are these applied into our lives so that we are not just an intellectual understanding church, but we are a Bible living church. This short burst of verses gives us insight into what we must apply as a church in order to thrive on, on sound doctrine. The great danger of the church is that sometimes we will come and we will learn biblical insights. We will strengthen our beliefs. We will champion our apologetics so that we have an answer in season and out of season. And while this is good, there are times when we can, leave, we can leave the assembly here completely unchanged for Jesus Christ. So allow me to lean into that with this text in order to explain this out. Do you know that one of the functions of a thriving church... Is to drive us out of loving ourselves in living the gospel? Do you see all the people that are around you right now? I just feel free, just turn your head if you want. I want you to look at all the different kinds of people that are here. I want you to see that they're around you. And you may look around and you go, Yes, I see them. There are a lot of weirdos at Trinity Baptist Church. Can I get a witness at all? And it reflects leadership, all right? We're all weird. God has divinely placed every one of us in this room to draw us away from ourselves and into a self-sacrificing gospel living in our lives where you and I will have to deny ourselves in order to love one another and be in relationship with one another, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. I would like to give a gentle warning at this moment. Be careful about small home churches and small groups being what you call your church. Now, I want to make this very, very clear Not because of the size or not because of location. There are many places around this country and in other countries where home churches are all that is available or, or that are profitable. There are small groups, and that is a biblical thing. In fact, we have small groups here at Trinity. This warning isn't that they are wrong. All right, what did I say? Oh, yeah, okay, that's up there. Talk to me. What do you see when you see this picture other than a bunch of white men? What do you see... When you look at this picture, talk to me. Okay, they're all the same. They smiles. Go ahead, dive into the details. What do you see? Yeah. Same haircut. Same hair. Thank you, Captain Obvious Paul. All right. Be careful, especially in our area where your small group or your home church. There's a gentle warning here, all right? And and you're gonna see it in the text here. This isn't just some rabbit trail. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because there is a, a possible danger of what we I'm just gonna call spiritual homogenation. Spiritual homogenation, let me explain that. Oftentimes our small group or our home churches feel so wonderful because we get to pick the entire makeup of the church. We get to do a draft. We get to pick people who are like us and think like us, and then we can warm our hearts with our similarities. One time a friend of mine said to me, My small group is amazing. Why can't church be more like our small group? And I just I just laughed out loud. And he kind of snarled at me. And I said, Look at you, you look at your group. You have chosen all five star recruits, hence the picture. Everyone in your small church is nearly the same age, the same family makeup, the same social economic background, the same standing. All are relatively in good health. None of them are new believers. None have criminal records. None are high maintenance. And you all share a a great deal in common. You love your small group because it costs you little and it reminds you of yourself. You put one high maintenance person in that group. One prickly person in that group, one no-believer, one broken home, one differently-abled, one poor person, or here's just just one annoying personality, and fam- you know what? Just, just put in someone with a nut allergy, and your utopia will explode. Right, Jory? Tell your wife I said that. She's destroyed the ministry of this church. All right, no, I'm just Jesus. Andrew, I, I'm not. I don't want to talk about Andrew's medical things, but you can't have peanuts. Okay. All of a sudden, this amazing thing will pop. You see, the reason your small group or your home church is nothing like the regular church is because your small group is nothing like the church. Now, with that in mind, God has divinely placed. Various kinds of people in different places in life with different personalities. How many here will agree we all have very different personalities? Amen? Not so that we can erase them. Not so that we can erase them. But those things can draw us away from ourselves into a self-sacrificing nature of the gospel in our lives. With that as the backdrop... Let's look at this screen here, because this one's gotten more dimmer. More dimmer. How do you like that, English students? Much more dimmerer. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul... And not one of them claimed anything that belonged to them alone, but all lived in common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Jesus Christ. Very offensive message, by the way. And abundant grace was upon them all. Now, Joseph the Levite, I'm skipping to verse 36, of Cyperium birth, Cyprus, who was also called son of encouragement by the apostles, because there was just far too many Josephs in Jerusalem at this time. Like, sometimes my wife will say, I'm talking to Christy. I go, Christy who? Thank you. Who said exactly? Yes. Or Kathy's. <laughs> Kathy who? You know, they'll say, well, I'm, talk- I'm talking to Christy or, or I'll say something. I'm talking to Steve. And they're like, Steve who? Joseph who? That'd be a good last name. <laughs> and the congregation of those who believed. I just want to start out real quick. What we see here is that the church is for believers. The church is for believers to be strengthened and to grow. Yes, we want to design our... No, not design. We want to live lives that are so welcoming. A child of the devil will come into here and know they are loved. Amen? But they ought not to feel comfortable. Because they ought to see something they don't have. The church is for believers now the word congregation here in the Greek is not the word ekklesia, which means assembly. It is, it is the Greek word plethos, which means multitude. It's a different name here because it, what, the church has grown so rapidly that Luke no longer gives any actual numbers anymore in the entire book of Acts. It's like when he says, listen, when we get to 5,000 men, we are done Counting. Frederick Bruce points this out. He says, Luke uses a word, the the word like multitude here, to draw the attention to the considerable size of the community in Jerusalem by now. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Now, with this being said, there is a practical application here. All right? And I want you to grab this because we are experiencing this practical application at Trinity. And it is a good application and there can be a bad application. It will either expose a selfless gospel in our lives or a self-centered heart in our lives. And if later, it can lead to division and neglect. Let me ask you a question and feel free to raise your hand. I'll call on you because when a couple hundred people all answer at the same time, it sounds like tongues and I cannot interpret it, okay? Okay. Let me ask you a question. How is it that a church that is growing rapidly, that's what's happening in Jerusalem, how is it that a church that is growing rapidly can find themselves in danger of division? Why would division be a threat to a church that, that is growing when people we don't know are joining? Why would that cause division? Talk to me. Growing church can cause division. Why? Anyone at all? Yes. L. What's that? Difference of opinion. Difference of opinion. Absolutely. Or direction. or direction. That's two answers. I asked for one. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> That's three. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Uh, uh, um, no, don't tell me your name. She is Susan. You're Michael. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I only married you two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You start to see all the differences. Excellent answer. What is? We'll take one or two more. Why? Why is there? Why is there the danger of division in the church that is rapidly going? I saw a hand. Ozzy. You start to feel lost. I see uh, Steve back there. Oh, there it is. There. Finish the sentence. They're not like. Us, me. Pick the pronoun. They're not like me. Those people think differently. Mike, you brought this up in others. Those people think differently than me. They're not the same as me. Oftentimes when small churches start to grow, people will even leave or get angry or feel lost. We, we, we want to keep what we like to ourselves like children who will not share. We take our church like a toy and we say the words what? Mine! I once heard of a person who was part of a church that, that was rapidly go, growing and they were not happy about the growth so they would literally walk around to the new visitors in the church and say, we are really hoping new people will stop coming here. My friends, there could not be anything more opposed or the antithesis of the gospel than just saying, I I love what I have and I will not share it. In fact, we're going to see that in Acts chapter 6, but we're in chapter 4 right now. Here we have a church that goes from 0 to 5,000 in mere weeks. And the group of people that grew from, now remember, they're different from me. The people that it grew from were from those from all over the known world that traveled to Jerusalem during Pentecost. People from all backgrounds and thoughts. In fact, soon we will be introduced to one of them, Barnabas, who is a Levite from Cyprus. Barnabas, because of we know this, is a diaspora Jew. Now, diaspora is a fancy word for he was dispersed during the exile. When an occupying force comes in and persecutes people and, 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 and all of that, people run and they disperse themselves and they relocate as a refugee. This is who Barnabas is. He is a dispersed Jew because of persecution. And he lands up in an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Cyprus. Do you think for a moment, this diaspora Jew who lived on the island, uh, in an island in the Mediterranean Sea, surrounded by Gentiles outside of his normal country, had the same thoughts and customs of a lifelong Israelite living under the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem? Heavens knows. And in fact, let me add some historical context here that will explode behind the scenes, but is found within the text. Barnabas is a Levite, which tells us Levites are of the priestly line. We find that in verse 36, which means he's from the priestly line. Now, according to the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, according to the Torah, especially within Numbers chapter 18, or Deuteronomy, chapter 10, all right, a Levite is not allowed to own land. Yet, Barnabas, a Levite of the priestly line, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Numbers chapter 18, in a city that observes the Torah, is about to sell what? Land. Now, there may be many reasons for this. He was dispersed. He's no longer in Jerusalem. He's on an island. They buy land there. It could be that, the, that this rule of the Torah was not vigorously observed by first century time. But to many in the fundamental Jewish community within Jerusalem, a diaspora Jew coming in from Cyprus who is a Levite and owns land and lives with Gentiles is at best a violation or the bending of the Torah. He is an outside compromiser. Let me contemporize this. It would be as though Joseph of Arimathea, or, oh, there's another Joseph, right? It would be like if Joseph was a King James only, rural, loving, hymn only, piano playing, dress clothes wearing, fundamental, Dutch Calvinist from Michigan, we can't relate to any of us. Sitting next to Barnabas, a new international version, city loving, praise, band, drum playing, casual clothes wearing, newcomer from Ohio. How can this be? The compromise. How can we stand for Christ if we don't all agree on everything? Now remember. It has grown to well over 5,000 people since Pentecost. And this one example of Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, owning land, all that, that history there is one example of diversity of thought that would be multiplied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. All right? To most Baptist churches today, the early church would have been an absolute nightmare. Yet, look. At the next set of verses. All these weirdos. All these diverse people from all over the world. Granted, most of them are Jews. But they come from different cultures. Were of one heart. And of one soul. How? How does a church thrive in a world that wants it to die? Well, this points to two things. First, true, genuine fellowship with no division is what one heart and soul means. No division, genuine fellowship. Now, this here is what we would call in ministry a miracle. Right up there with the virgin birth, all right? An absolute miracle. For let us remember that these people, where these people come from, and I will only be reading the areas that I can pronounce, all right? So let's move forward, all right? No. <laughs> Parthians, and Medes, and, and, and Judea, and Caledonia, and Asia, and Philadelphia, and... Egypt and Libya and Cyrene Rome and both Jews and proselytes and, and Cretans from and Arabs. That's a diverse group. Can I get a can I just get an affirmation? That is a very diverse group, amen? They're of one mind and of one soul. Look at this. No division. One heart, one soul. How is this possible? What I would like to do is I want you to take these words off from the screen and we're going to unpack them and then we'll bring them back. Churches today, talking about thriving, fight about everything. Churches today fight about everything. What then brought great unity in a church that had so much diversity of thought? Here's the answer. What made the early church thrive is what they shared in common overwhelmed. Mike, you talked about this. What they shared in common overwhelmed what they did not. The resurrected Jesus Christ in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, the church misses the whole point when they see unity as everyone agreeing on everything. Let me say that again because, boy, does that preach. The church misses the whole point when they believe that church unity is when everyone agrees on everything, and it is not. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to answer. When would Trinity find unity If we all must agree on everything. Talk to me. Never. 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 Because many of us, as we look at this, because many of of the people in this room, in fact, I'm just going to be more specific, because many of you are not normal like me. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we see ourselves as the standard? They're weird. Really? Really? Have you looked in the mirror, Brett, all right? It is wrong when local churches believe unity is found in carrying the same Bible version or reading all the same authors or agreeing on a dress code or putting their children in the same schools that somehow unity is found when we all slowly become clones of one another rather than that of Jesus Christ. This is not Christian unity. It is nothing more than a fruitless self-serving defense of a brand or style that makes us feel safe and control in the name of Christ. But you may say, what's wrong with a church that, that demands all the kids go to the same school and wear the same outfit and say, the, and say everything but those five words we're not allowed to say and we keep the hair off or, or whatever the case may be or the opposite direction. What's wrong with a church that, is, that just has that kind of uniformity? There's a lot wrong with Kent Hughes nails it out of the park. He says this. The insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying mindsets a church can have because it instills a, jud- a, a a judgmental because it instills a judgmental flexibility. It should say inflexibility. That's my bad. A judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with lethal force. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen a judgmental inflexibility in the church over the last couple of generations? Have you seen this to be true? Have you seen people get uh, come to church and, and leave and be pushed out or thrusted out because they weren't like the homogenous group? Have generations of our children been hurled away from church because we were interested in cloning our positions rather than Christ? Huh. One of the quickest ways we can make the church as weak as possible is trying to make it an echo chamber of homogenous thought that seeks to make everyone the same. Now I'm talking here about discernible issues, not sound doctrine. Sound doctrine does. Not move. Amen, church. Your discernible positions around them are negotiable, flexible. In fact, I would go so far as to say in Philippians chapter 2, submissive. We are not united. All right. We are not united because we all agree on homeschool philosophy or Christian school or public school. What unites us is not our political party or our race or our dress code or that we all agree on movies, alcohol, haircuts, worship songs, Bible versions, or whether or not the drums are of the devil, which they are. And if you disagree with me, go find yourself another assembly. You know, broke my heart when I first got here is a former pastor who had been pastoring for, for, for decades and decades. The moment we brought out the drums and Jory hit it with a feather. You know, we really introduced it very slowly. Did we not? We put it in the barn, all right, and Jory would just hit it with feathers. And even then it was too loud. Wrote a letter and said, this is my last Sunday. I will not participate in this kind of Christianity. What kind of Christianity? Biblical? No, I'm not saying the, biblical, the drums are biblical and the piano is not. Now look at this here. And I really appreciate this. In fact, Dave Rogers sent me a quote, and I want to read it. When Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create a community that would likely exist even if God didn't. How does a church thrive? What makes a church thrive in a culture that wants it to die? Here it is. If you hear nothing else this morning, Calvin, if you've tuned me out for the first 20 minutes, come with me, brother. All right? What makes a church thrive in a culture that wants it to die, here it is. What brings unity is not agreeing on everything, but all of us agreeing on one thing. Unity is not when we all agree on everything, but when all of us agree on one thing. And that one thing is obeying the clear truth of scriptures, glorifying Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. That is our goal, amen? It's not to be like me or Doc Dickinson or, Lord, help us, Carol, demand.
1: Love you, Carol. (laughs)
2: One thing, and grace should cover all the rest. Jesus never said, they will know you are mine by the shirt you wear, the politics you hold, or the musical instrument you prefer. He said this to believers and his disciples. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. And this is, this is mentioned in a group where Matthew the tax collector is sitting across from Simon the zealot. You two love each other. They could not be further apart. Here's a question. By John 13.35, by that definition, do people know we belong to Christ? Do you love this assembly? No matter how different we are from one another. When I first came to this church, a former pastor wanted to speak. And he said, my message will be on the ten things that are destroying the church. Well, that piqued my interest. Jory, you you know this. I want to speak. I want the pulpit. And I want to speak about the ten things that are destroying the church. And I said, oh, give me a couple. All ten of his things... We're about obeying extra-biblical rules that would preserve a brand or a style of church. And he said, when can I speak it? And I said, let me think about it. And I still am. <laughs> you see, what he didn't know is that what he wanted, those ten things, those ten extra-biblical, be-like-me things, was, in fact, what was actually destroying the church. He thought unity would come if he could convince everyone to agree with him. A.W. Tozer gives a great example. He says this: "Has it ever occurred to you that when a hundred pianos are tuned to the same tuning fork, they are all automatically tuned to one another? You're all pianos. Here is our tuning fork. Do you know that when all of us in this room, some of us are baby grand pianos, some of us are grand pianos, some of us are a $5 keyboard, everyone following me here? When all of us are tuned to the same fork, they are, we are automatically tuned to one another. We are not unified by being tuned to each other. It's going to sound horrible. But rather when we are tuned to one standard to which all of us individually bow. So, the question is this How do we get or maintain that kind of unity here at Trinity? Well, it is found in the next set of verses. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What were the apostles just told to do? Talk to me, church. Be quiet, especially about the resurrection. Let me just cut to the chase here. The preaching of the resurrection was very offensive. Was very offensive. The apostles never suppressed the truth of God's word in order to avoid offending people. They never suppressed the truth of God's word in order to avoid offending people. Or to make coming here more palatable for those who do not agree. And when the word is taught without compromise, it will reveal a truth that will overwhelm us. And that truth is that Jesus has lavished abundant grace upon all of us. Amen? In fact, the Greek here, if you notice the first three words here, we've got karaste megale, the grace the mega. Who's the green guy on Star Wars with the ears? Yoda, it's like Yoda's talking here. Oh, the grace, the mo- mega. In, in Greek, things get mixed around. But what, what this literally means is the mega grace of Jesus. Which, by the way, is not to be fi- be confused with mega, mega, make America great grace, all right? That's in something entirely different. And I noticed some of you got excited and some of you got scared. Now notice the balance here. Uncompromised teaching of truth is followed because when you uncompromisingly truth who teach who Jesus is and who we are not, the mega grace of Jesus fills our hearts. Truth and grace, one pastor said it well. Jesus did not come to strike a balance between truth and grace. He brought the full measure of both. The early church thrived on solid teaching and grace living. When we understand the uncompromising message of the Word of God and how Christ came to empty, lost people and poured His grace and blood on them, we realize the magnitude of His grace. We are saved by His grace. We are healed by His grace. We are nurtured by His grace. Oh, are we not people who have been saved by the mega grace of God? You see, when we understand the magnitude of the grace of Jesus... How he sacrificially emptied himself for us. When we truly understand that old hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, reaching all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the othermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus has reached me. When that is the tuning fork. It will produce, oh, this is huge. When that is the tuning fork, it will produce a community of mega grace to one another. And rather than trying to hide our sins, we would run to one another. Rather than hiding our needs, we will share them. Rather than hoarding our money and our resources, we would hemorrhage it. When we fully embrace the gospel of Christ and his giving grace, it will cultivate a culture within the church that is self-giving Not because we all agree on everything, but because we all agree on one thing, and that one thing is the grace of Jesus. Look at how the self-sacrificing mega-grace compelled the church to live. Verses 34 through 37. For there was not a needy person among them, and all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds in the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. This is a heart that reflects what Christ has done for us. Christ emptied himself. How can we say we understand the gospel and hoard things to ourselves? And they laid them at the apostles' feet that they would be distributed among those in need. Now Joseph, another Joseph. Joseph who? You know, Barnabas! Son of encouragement who owned a track of land. Wait, isn't he a Levite? Yeah, he is, but hey, you know, let's just let him put it in the offering plate. So it bought, he bought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. For all who were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds and sales. Now, I want to set the hook here financially, but I also am going to let you off the hook financially. This is not a command to sell all that you have and give it to the church. Let me say that again. This is not a command to sell all that you have and give it to the church. And all of God's people said, oh. In fact, Mary, you know, (laughs) Jerusalem's not a big place, okay? Mary, the mother of John Mark, Here's an interesting little detail. The aunt of Barnabas. Man, this, this, this family tree in Jerusalem just kind of doesn't sprout out much, does it? He is the aunt, she is the aunt of Barnabas, will still own land and a home in Acts chapter 12. Plus, we will see this isn't some sort of commune. This isn't an early form of communism. All of it is voluntary. It is in abundance of their heart. In fact, do you think for a moment Jesus wants you to begrudgingly give that which he already owns? Talk to me, church. No. He don't need your money. He wants your heart. And there is no better expression of who owns your heart than what you give up what everyone else loves. Money. Money. So this is not a command to sell all that you have and give it to the church. Mary's still going to own a home and land a little bit later in this passage, and she is, well, um, uh, you know, godly woman. This is a unique situation right after Pentecost, when many people who came from all over the world did not have homes. Barnabas from Cyprus. Or were persecuted out of the Jewish community. Many became jobless and socially excommunicated from the synagogue because of their public baptism of repentance, on identifying with the culture and identifying with Jesus Christ. All these believers may all these believers may have left is property and assets to liquidate. No one's employing them. No one's no one's doing commerce with them. This is a unique situation. Everyone here at Trinity has not lost their jobs at the same time. We have not all been excommunicated at the same time. We have not all been socially cast out at the same time. All of us have not been left by our immediate family at the same time. This is an example of grace permeating the church in a very unique situation. In fact, Spencer writes this, and I agree with him. It cannot be argued that the particular way in which they expressed their generosity was prescriptive. It was descriptive. In fact, later texts will illustrate many other ways people give of their resources, time, and money. So this is not prescriptive. Now, with that in mind, two things come to my mind here, church family. And here's number one. You can affirm it. Aren't you glad you don't have to sell everything? Amen? Okay, some of you didn't say amen. We're looking forward to that offering next week. Number two. Number two. We can see how clearly and how important it is that context is important in order to understand the message of the Bible. Context. 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 This describes how they were generous. It does not prescribe how to be generous, but how. And with that, you are off the proverbial, proverbial, that's not how you say it, is it? It is now. All right, because I am the standard. All right, no, the proverbial hook. But now, let me set a different hook. All right, well, the means here of selling you, selling all that you have is not a command, the heart behind it is. The heart behind it is, there is an undeniable, an undeniable exhortation and, and instruction that we must have generous mega-grace heart of giving for the care of the church and those within it. If you are hoarding your money and your resources, you do not understand the sacrificial grace of God. In fact, what we have here is one of the first teachings to the church that will be followed by many, 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 many others in the New Testament about the act of giving generously and sacrificially to the assembly. In fact, the words, and bring the proceeds, is written in the imperfect tense, meaning their giving was regular and it was reoccurrent. In fact, we're going to see a lot more of it in the very next chapter. By the way, all of this is reaffirmed through the Pauline epistles and the teaching of the New Testament. So let me just say this clearly. We are all instructed to give money and resources joyfully, generously, and sacrificially, regularly to the assembly. It is not a suggestion. In fact, it is a reflection of a truly redeemed heart. Now, it says this, and we're almost done. And they laid it at the apostles' feet so that the apostles would distribute it as each had need. The apostles represent church leadership here. For us, we call them elders. But they represent church leadership here. And church leadership is responsible before God for the use of those funds. When we give, no strings should be attached for the advancement of the gospel and the care of the church community. Here's the point a thriving church that is individually submitting to one tuning fork, and that fork is Jesus Christ, will become selfless, generous, regular dispensers of our resources and our grace for the advancement of the gospel and the care of a diverse body, who all agree, not on everything, but on one thing. And the one thing that matters is living out and glorifying the mega grace of Jesus. And my friends, I tell you, if you show me a church like that, I will show you a church where I would like to worship for the rest of my life regardless of its size for that is a church that is thriving in a culture that wants it to be dying with all of that being said Luke gives a great example of what all this looks like And now Joseph now let all that, we're done. The piano's playing, but here we go. With all that context we just studied Cyprus, Diaspora, Levite, Church, Pentecost, all those names I couldn't pronounce. Just allow those contextual and historical and Torah and Shema details just fall into this one little sentence. And now, Joseph, Joseph who? There's Josephs everywhere the Levite who was dispersed after the exile who lives on the island of Cyprus who came because of Pentecost we gave him the nickname Barnabas who owned a tract of land what? yes he's a compromiser no he's not sold it. Because of the mega grace of Jesus in his life, he exhibited mega grace to those who were different from him. With no strings attached, he laid it at the feet of church leadership. You know, Sometimes you read about the early church and you go, how in the world does that exist? Luke's portrayal of the church has been unanimously and totally positive to this point. And we look at it and say, how can this ever be attained? But you know, such a picture is not complete. Because the church is full of imperfect people. The church is full of sinners. The pulpits are full of sinners. Because every church is made up of sinners. Next week we will see the first negative account of the early church. And what is it? Hypocrisy. Well, that won't preach. Fortunately, that's been eradicated from the bride of Christ. In the pulpits of America today. Next week we will see the first negative account of sin in the church and it's hypocrisy saying you have something that you don't. Oh, the potency of God's word. But that's next week. This week, what makes a church thrive in a culture that wants it to die? The un compromising teaching of the Word of God that produces mega grace in those who are in it. Gracious Heavenly Father, may be known individually and corporately to hemorrhage grace because Your Son hemorrhaged grace on us. And Father, it is easy to hemorrhage grace on those who agree with us and do the same things as us and look like us and think like us. But Father, that's not grace, that's self-love. May we show grace to those who think differently than us. Who choose differently than us. Because you first loved us while we were yet dead. We love your example, Lord Jesus. Dismiss us with your blessing. In your name alone, a name by which there is salvation and nothing else. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.